Well, for those of you who may already be looking in your bulletin, you maybe already have, and you're already feeling like it's kind of a Where's Waldo moment, because you're looking for the sermon outline and you can't find it, I'll just let you know it's nowhere in there. There's no outline this morning. What we did instead was try to take this space to make room for the reading. It's obviously a longer reading this morning, so we took both pages to have a reading. And I'm going to go ahead and just sit you right back down again. (laughs) Um, For the sake of keeping our attentions instead of trying to prove our stamina, that might be difficult through 27 verses. Also, you'll notice a little bit of a mistake here, my fault. Verses 17 and 18 are missing. That was not on purpose. That was just an oversight. So I'm going to read verses 17 and 18 from 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning, but you won't see them in your bulletin. You'll just have to hear them and pick back up again in 19. Well, the last few weeks, we've been in the middle of a very helpful series from Colin on generosity. Being generous with our hospitality, our power, our money. And this morning we're going to finish this short series by looking at kind of an odd way to be generous. We're going to look at being generous with our brokenness. As Colin has alluded to already a number of times in the last few weeks, it's by being generous with our brokenness first and foremost that there can really be any effectiveness in being generous with our hospitality, our power, or our money. And so this morning we're going to take a look at a successful, we're going to get a picture of a successful, powerful, wealthy man who considered himself to be humble, who considered himself to be generous, only to learn what real, true brokenness really looked like and meant for him. And so young Christians, young theologians, you heard earlier, you heard Dr. Welch come up and read from Mark chapter 10 about Jesus receiving the little children unto him and saying that anyone who would have eternal life, anyone who would have a hold of him, Jesus, must be like a little child. And then that was followed right up with the rich young man who comes up and who's obeyed all these commands, all these laws, finds out he can't follow Jesus because he's not willing to leave his riches, to give up all that he owns. We're going to look at two men in our passage this morning in 2 Kings chapter 5, and I want you to ask this question to yourself. Which of these men becomes like a little child, and which of these men is like the rich young ruler from Mark chapter 10? This is the good news of Jesus brought to us through the history of Israel, through the story of a proud general who's made broken, a humble servant who's made proud, and a little girl who's the most surprising of all. And it's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, 
Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing. 
and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent them in away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Our God in heaven, we ask again this morning, as we always ask every week, Father, for you to do what we always need you to do. And that is to give us of your spirit, to use your spirit to enlighten our hearts and our minds that we may understand your holy word. We ask that we would see Christ and his gospel held out to us in this passage of the Old Testament. Let us see Jesus holding out his grace to us. Let us be comforted. Let us be convicted. Let us hear what you would say to each one of us. You know what we need. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen. Well, it was North Texas Giving Day recently. This last Thursday, actually, to be more precise, a lot of you probably already knew that. And according to the official website of the North Texas Giving Day, North Texans gave almost $37.5 million to North Texas area nonprofits of all kinds. And it's really great news. It's really good news. We're fortunate to live in a city that prioritizes generosity so much that a particular day is even marked out for it, and the general population is encouraged to give, and it's even made convenient for them to give to all kinds of causes. And we pastor types were known for speaking out against the culture and against the world so often. It makes it important for us to be sure that we also recognize the good that's in our culture, the good that's in our city, places where we see God's grace being demonstrated wherever we find it. And North Texas Giving Day is one of those places, I think. But you, you probably also know this, too. But philanthropy, generosity, giving is in. It's in. It's not just nice. It's not just appreciated for you or to me or for me to be generous it's actually cool these days i mean you could you could buy some designer jeans you could get a creative tattoo or you could give that same money to a local animal shelter or a montessori school and you're scoring cool points either way aren't you Probably more cool points with the donation, if we're honest. And there's nothing wrong with giving to animal shelters or to many organizations, or with jeans or tattoos, for that matter. But the connection between generosity and being cool brings up an important issue for us when we think about, when we consider generosity. And really, the the issue is the same one that we feel when we find out that a certain person or organization makes a major contribution to a candidate's political campaign. 
It's the same way we feel when a celebrity is showcased on television giving $5 million to their favorite charity as they flash their million-dollar smile for the camera. Because we know that very often what's behind an act of generosity is not a gift at all. It's a purchase. It's a purchase dressed up like a gift to get us something else we really think that we need or we think we want. And that's what's going on with two characters in our passage this morning. The first of these that we see is Naaman. And verse 1 gives us all of Naaman's impressive resume right up front. He's, he's the supreme commander of the Syrian army. A man who's held in high esteem by the king of Syria, which is a major regional power in Palestine at this time. Naaman is so highly esteemed because it was through his military skill that God had chosen to give so much victory to Syria's king. He's also a man of great valor, which speaks to his courage and to his boldness. Naaman's not the kind of guy who, who kind of stands in the back and gives orders to his men at the front lines. No, he, he grabs a, a sword or a spear and a shield in the other hand, and he sweats and he bleeds with his men on the front lines. He's a man of valor. But Naaman had a problem. A problem that all of his success, all of his skill, all of his education, all of his military greatness couldn't even begin to touch. He was ill with a common disease that usually slowly killed people. It was a death sentence to have it. Naaman was a leper. But fortunately for Naaman... A captured Israelite girl who was a slave in his house told Naaman that a prophet from her country could cure him, and so off Naaman goes to Israel. And verse 5 describes for us in detail how generous Naaman is willing to be. 750 pounds of silver, 145 pounds of gold, 10 changes of most likely luxurious clothing, and all of this, that he, and all of this he's, he's taking with him, he's planning to give one man. It was worth 600 years of salary for a common laborer. And so Naaman leaves with his horses, his chariots, and probably quite the military guard for all the treasure that he's carrying with him. And he leaves for Israel. Israel, a defeated people in Naaman's mind. The Syrians, who are sometimes called the Arameans, they had defeated Israel back in 1 Kings 22 when King Ahab was killed. This chapter tells us they make regular raids into Israel and don't seem to be confronted much at all by Israel's military. And so Naaman comes into the land of a defeated people, a people lesser than him from his perspective. And his first insult The first insult he receives comes when the king of Israel won't help him. The king of Israel is terrified that this is some kind of ruse. This is some kind of trick that the Syrians are playing to cause a dispute that they can use to justify war. Instead of trusting God, the king of Israel is busy tearing his own clothes out of despair. 
while Naaman is sincerely offering luxurious clothes and more to anyone who will help him. And in the, in the nick of time before a major international incident gets out of hand, Elisha, the prophet, hears about all of this and invites Naaman to his place. But now, there's a worse insult waiting for Naaman. Verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. And as verses 11 and 12 tell us, Naaman, he's furious. He's had enough at this point. He was a man with great power, but in his mind, he was willing to put it all aside to associate with lowly Israelites, small slave girls and defeated kings and dusty prophets. He had great, great wealth, but in his mind, he's being incredibly generous. He was willing to give it to those who had much, much less than him. In many ways, Naaman saw himself as a great philanthropist, a humble person, filled with humility, a giving person, who's even willing to admit his own embarrassment. He's willing to come to these defeated people with kind of an embarrassing truth about himself, an embarrassing truth about his own sickness, his own dilapidated physical condition. But the king of Israel had accused him of political intrigue. And now this backwoods prophet, he's he's not even going to come out to meet him face to face as Naaman stands on top of his war chariot with his guard all around him. I mean, didn't this Elisha know who he was? Didn't he know that the second most powerful man in all of Palestine is right outside his door? It's common. It's common in Dallas to see people with a lot of money giving a lot of money. If you're looking, it is. It's common in Dallas to see people of power associating even with the weak. It's common in Dallas to see people who have a lot sharing a lot with others. And those are good things. But what is not common in any of these cases is seeing people doing it with a spirit of brokenness. What is not common in these cases is seeing powerful and wealthy people doing these things with a spirit of expecting nothing in return. No appreciation, no thanks, no seat at the table of the board of directors, no veto power or right to decide how an organization that they're giving to is going to be run. But when we give out of a place of power and pride, even if we're not giving for a seat at the table or more influence in an organization, something that tangible, we're sometimes still often being generous for the sake of keeping a self-view, a perspective of ourselves that we want to maintain. And so oftentimes we can be generous out of guilt so that we don't feel bad later. It's the curse of people-pleasing. We're going to give of our money, or we're going to give of our time, or we're going to give out of our hospitality to not disappoint this person, we tell ourselves. But really what we're doing is we're giving of those things to this person so that we won't 
feel bad about ourselves and feel guilty and incriminate ourselves later. So we call it people-pleasing, but really it's self-pleasing. We give out of the guilt of not wanting to feel bad about ourselves later. We want to maintain a view of ourselves that we have, and if we don't give in this particular circumstance, we're afraid of what the other person's going to think about us, and really what we're afraid of is what we're going to think about us later. Or maybe we're generous out of a desire to feel more pious so that we don't feel bad enjoying so much of what we have because we gave earlier. We can feel okay about taking our family to the beach. It's all right. I wrote a check last week to an organization. But whenever we're being generous with our time or our money or power or hospitality so that we can feel better about ourselves, we aren't really giving, we're buying. We're purchasing. And what we're purchasing with our generosity is self-justification. What we're purchasing with our generosity is a self-view of power and pride, and we're giving in order to maintain that self-view. And this is what Naaman has been trying to do at this point. He's been humble enough to make his way into lowly Israel to seek an audience with their second-class king and then entertain the notions of this prophet. But he's been doing it all from a self-view, a self-portrait of pride and power, seeking to be recognized as such. And so what was Naaman going to have to do? What was Naaman going to have to do? What was he going to have to let go of to get the healing that he needed? He was going to have to let go of his pride and his power. Naaman had to be brought to a place where he recognized that his real need was not to be treated like a person of privilege and power. His real need was not even to be treated like a generous person. As long as he thought that this was his real need, he was going to use generosity or riches or anything to get it. Instead, he had to be brought to the place where he recognized that his deepest needs had nothing to do with his position. His greatest need wasn't even to be healed from leprosy, although this is clearly a very real need he has. But what Naaman needed in order to see this was a brokenness of spirit, a humility, a humility that only God could do in him supernaturally, miraculously, by his grace. And this is why Elisha won't go out to him. Elisha knows this. This is why he won't go out. He won't go out to Naaman standing proud in his chariot. He won't validate Naaman's pride. He won't go out and say some words over him because he doesn't want Naaman to think that he, Elisha, can do anything from himself. And so instead he tells Naaman to go wash in the Jordan seven times. Why seven? That's that's the divine symbol of infinite power of eternality. It's the the symbol of infinite grace. Seven. Naaman is told to believe and to go be washed. An Old Testament picture of New Testament baptism. That the God of Israel, the true God, may cleanse him and heal him completely by grace. 
It's the reason why Elisha won't receive even one cent of Naaman's 600-year salary's worth of treasure. Why? Because even one cent would, in this particular circumstance, invalidate grace. It would nullify grace. You can't pay for this, Naaman. It doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have. Your generosity is no good here because your generosity has nothing to do with it. This is about your brokenness and about God's grace. Be generous with your brokenness and you will find God generous with his grace. Amen. And of course, what's sad in this story is that Gehazi, who has served and ministered alongside Elisha so many years, he doesn't get it. A man of ministry doesn't get grace. His words in verse 20 reveal this. See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. The Hebrew word for spare here means to keep back. The NIV translates it actually really well by saying, my master was too easy on Naaman. Because for Gehazi, grace isn't grace. Generosity is always for something in return. God's grace isn't free. And so neither can human generosity be free either for Gehazi. And so he quickly swears by the Lord's name that he's going to take some of Naaman's gift, and he does. But look at the difference in Naaman already. Once Gehazi catches up to him, Naaman, he's not standing proudly up on his chariot anymore. He leaps down from his chariot in verse 21 to meet the servant of a lowly prophet. And what does the clergyman do? Well, frankly, he tries a more evil form of generosity than Naaman had even tried at the beginning of the story. He makes it sound like he wants the gift for some families and ministry. He's raising money for the church. Surely a wealthy man like you could spare something for poor servants of God like these men, right? But he's serving himself, as the author makes plain. And he's cursed for it. He's cursed... Not just for lying, not just for deceiving, but for messing with grace. For taking advantage of a man who received spiritual and physical healing by grace so that he could become rich off of it. And so we see already here in the passage, Gehazi, he proves himself to be like the rich young ruler in Mark 10. Even though he's not rich, he has the heart of that man. He's he's been in ministry, he's been serving with Elisha, he lives daily with probably very little, he follows the commandments, he's a good faithful Israelite, but where's his heart? His heart makes an idol out of the treasure that Naaman has. The only difference between Gehazi and the rich man in Mark chapter 10 is that the rich man is concerned about keeping the wealth he already has and he makes an idol out of it. Gehazi doesn't have any yet, and he wants something that someone else has. It's the only difference. But where do we see Jesus in this story? We see him in Elisha, don't we? We see him 
not let Naaman pay for grace. We see him bring Naaman to a place of brokenness. Do you know where I think we see Jesus most powerfully? I'm sure you've guessed it. It doesn't take long. Verses 2 and 3. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. and She worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. It doesn't take a lot from our imaginations to think about what this girl had been through. Her family's not in the picture. It's very possible that they were killed even in this military raid that's spoken of. She'd been carried off from her home by enemy Gentile soldiers, and let's not spend much time imagining what that could have been like. And now she's been serving as a slave in the home of her chief enemy. If there is one person in this entire chapter who's being generous from a place of utter brokenness, it is this precious little girl. God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. This girl's every day was a dying. It was a sacrifice. Her every day was a reminder of her brokenness. And what's interesting is when we get to verse 14 and we see Naaman listening finally to his servants and to Elisha, and he goes down into the Jordan, he washes there. It says, what? That his flesh was healed and became like that of a little child. Naaman's flesh becomes like a little child's in that verse because his heart had already done so. His heart had already become like the little girl who gave him the good news at the beginning of the chapter broken, like hers. Our congregation, you know it, it's filled with a lot of accomplished, highly educated people, highly intelligent people. Some of you are very well paid. People of consequence and power. And those are all blessings from God. And in my family's last seven years here at New St. Peter's, we have seen Jesus mightily, and so many of you. And even though Christ shines through you when you give out of your strength, and so many of you give so much out of your strength, and Christ shines through that, whether it's money or it's time or it's service, I can tell you from our part, my wife and I, our family has been most impacted. We have seen Jesus most clearly in all of you. When strong, educated, well-to-do families are broken by things that are too big for them. Infertility. Loss of a child in the womb. An adoption that doesn't happen. Depression. Eating disorders. Chronic pain and illness. And death the greatest enemy of all. All of them bigger and stronger than any of us. 
things that education and money and training and accomplishment cannot fix. And we've seen so many of you in a state of brokenness in the face of these things where you could not be strong for Jesus. And instead you had no choice but to be broken before Jesus. And you have invited us into your brokenness. You have been generous with your brokenness, like this little girl. I pray, I pray regularly, I'm, not enough, but I pray regularly that my daughter, Aubrey, would see Jesus in her mother and me. That she would see us love like Jesus. That she would see us pursue holiness like Jesus. That she would see us be self-denying like Jesus, sacrificial like Jesus. But it hit me recently when I was praying this that maybe that's not the thing she needs most of all. Maybe she doesn't need to see her mother and I being wonderful examples for Jesus most of all. Maybe she needs something else more. Maybe what she really needs is to see her mother and I cracked and broken and bleeding and faint before Jesus. Maybe more than seeing us be supermodels for Jesus, she needs to see us needing him. And that's how she'll know she needs him too. When she sees her mom and dad with plan A and plan B blown out of the water. No other options. Just him. Maybe that's what she needs to see. Maybe that's what will help convince her she needs Jesus so much when she sees her parents needing him so much. And the good news of the gospel means that those who are broken before Jesus are always broken for Jesus. Those who are truly broken at the foot of the cross are, by their very brokenness, at the same time, proclaiming their need for the cross and proclaiming the power of the cross. Because only the gospel creates this kind of willingness to be broken before others. Because Jesus, even though we see him being generous from a place of strength many, many times, we see him commanding the winds and the waves like a king. We see him casting out demons like a warrior. We see him healing people like a physician. But the question is, when do we see him accomplishing the chief rescue of all of us at the pinnacle point? When he's being tortured. When he's being ripped away from his family and his friends enslaved to the cross, enslaved to death, completely broken. Jesus ministers to us the most when he has nothing left to give. Like this little girl for Naaman, Jesus becomes broken for us. And he beckons to us to join him there that we might give freely of our own brokenness and our own humility. Because it's through such ways that the kingdom of God has come and the kingdom of God will always and continue to come. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.
Father, you are faithful to us. Faithful in ways that we wish you weren't, if we're honest. Because you're faithful to bring us to places of brokenness again and again. Against every desire we'd have. But we know that you do it for so many reasons. We don't know them all, but we know that as we do it, you show Christ in us and through us. You draw us near to him. You show us our own need for him. And through our brokenness, through Jesus showing up in and through our brokenness, we know that you also proclaim to the world around us that the same Jesus is there for them. The same Jesus is their Savior. The same Jesus' grace is for them. And so I pray, Father, that even as you continue to bless so many of us, you've blessed so many of us, you continue to do it, please do so still more. Please bless us with strength that we may share that strength, but in the midst of it, let us hold on to our brokenness. Let us invite people into our brokenness, knowing that as we do, we're inviting them into the place of grace, the place of humility, the place where the grace of Christ is tasted and experienced. Let us be those kinds of people. We pray that you would do that in us and through us, individually, as families, as a congregation, even as the broader, wider church here in Dallas, in a city that prizes and loves strength and wealth and power so much. Let us be symbols, let us be proclaimers and representatives of the one who was broken, of the one who had nothing left and gave even that for all of us. Do this for us through his name and by the Spirit. Amen.